Hi everyone, welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Woodbean and this is episode 91 of the podcast and it's good to have you with me once again. And this week I'm going to be following up on what I spoke about last week. And last week I was speaking about the power elite and using C. Wright Mill's 1956 book, The Power Elite, as the basis for what I spoke about. And this week I'm going to be continuing on with the discussion of the power elite and specifically the chapter on mass society. And I did touch on that at the end of last week's episode, but I wanted to get into more detail on that particular part of the book because I think it's particularly important. And just to uh, give a reminder of what I spoke about last week and and, uh, what Mills speaks about, writes about in his book, that he argues that there is a power elite in the United States in particular Uh, made up of three spheres, the military sphere, the political sphere, and the business sphere, and that these spheres work together to uh, control, manipulate, uh, to run, basically run society. And in this chapter, in chapter 13, he speaks about the mass society. And in the beginning, I'll just read the first paragraph just to, to give you an introduction to what he says here in this chapter. He says, in the standard image of power and decision, no force is held to be as important as, in capital letters, the great American public. More than merely another check and balance, this public is thought to be the seat of all legitimate power. In official life, as in popular folklore, it is held to be the very balance wheel of democratic power. In the end, all liberal theorists rest their notions of the power system upon the political role of the public, of this public. All official decisions, as well as private decisions of consequence, are justified as in the public's welfare. All former formal proclamations are in its name. And so he goes on to consider whether this is actually true or not, whether there's more to this than just simple mythology. And his conclusion is, is that this idea of the great American public is actually much more a myth than it is a reality. He says, we must recognize this description as a set of images out of a fairy tale. They are not adequate even as an approximate model of how the American system of power works. The issues that now shape man's fate are neither raised nor decided by the public at large. The idea of the community of publics is not a description of fact, but an assertion of an ideal, an assertion of a legitimation masquerading, as legitimations are now apt to do, as fact. And so he says, uh, these doubts are asserted positively in the statement that the classic community of publics is being transformed into a society of masses. So there's a big difference between a society of publics, he says, and a society of masses. And well, what is that society of publics? Well, he says, in a democratic society of publics, it was assumed that before public action would be taken, there would be rational discussion between individuals, which would determine the action and that accordingly, the public opinion that resulted would be the infallible voice of reason. But this has been challenged, he says first of all, by the assumed need for experts to decide delicate and intricate issues. And so we've spoken about that in previous episodes, uh, specifically using the writing of Thomas Sowell. Uh, Secondly, he says, by the discovery, as by Freud, of the irrationality of the man in the street. 
and thirdly, by the discovery, as by Marx, of the socially conditioned nature of what was once assumed to be autonomous reason. And so he says the, uh, the assumption previously, according to this society of publics, uh, was that the public would act accordingly or see that its representatives did so to accomplish what is true and just and right. But he says, this assumption has been upset and it's been upset by a great gap that now exists between the underlying population and those who make decisions in its name. Decisions of enormous consequence, which the public often does not even know are being made until well after the fact. And how much truth there is in that. It, you know, when he wrote this book in the 1950s, uh, it was true. And uh, here in 2023, we can only say it's, uh, it's all the more true today. How much do we not know of what's going on in the corridors of power? What's going on behind the scenes? He speaks about how there was among uh, liberal thinkers, and, and I use that, that word liberal as in classical liberalism, so what we would now cons consider to be conservatives, uh, in the, the 19th and 20th century, there was an idea that, or actually kind of a fear of the, the masses. Uh, writers like Ortega y Gasset, uh, John Stuart Mill, writing about the tyranny of the majority, uh, Tocqueville, Burkhart. Uh, but he says this, he says, by the middle of the 1900s, or the 1800s, sorry, uh, individualism had begun to be replaced by collective forms of economic and political life, harmony of interests by inharmonious struggle of classes and organized pressures, rational discussions undermined by expert decisions on complicated issues, by recognition of the interested bias of argument by vested position, and by the discovery of the effectiveness, very important point, the effectiveness of irrational appeal to the citizen. So propaganda playing on people's emotions. Moreover, he goes on, certain structural changes in modern society uh, had begun to cut off the public from the power of active decision. So really, whereas Ortega y Gasset and other thinkers had, had worried about the masses taking control, this is... This is really far from what actually happened. Uh, and when we, we need to think of, so he talks about the society of public and the publics and the society of masses. What's the difference between these two? And he gives a list of, of a number of things. First of all, uh, the diff first difference is the ratio of givers of opinion to the receivers. And that describes the use of mass communication. So there's a very high ratio of givers of information to, to receivers. There's very few givers and very many receivers. The second dimension is the possibility of answering back an opinion without internal or external reprisals being taken. So the freedom of somebody to express their opinion openly and freely. And he says, informal rules resting upon conventional sanction and upon the informal structure of opinion leadership may govern who can speak, when, and for how long. So we see that in action where uh, voices are silenced, opinions cannot be expressed, you cannot question certain things, or you'll be excluded, or you'll be silenced, or uh, banned from certain platforms. Uh, you can't do any of those things. So that 
that is uh, an outworking of this kind of uh, reprisals that he's talking about. Then the third difference, he says, is that the, we need to consider the relation of the formation of opinion to its realization in social action. So social action or the formation of opinion uh, may be simply done, in other words, but the social action to result from that opinion is far from simple to accomplish. So people may have opinions about things, but may feel and may actually be powerless to implement those, uh, those ideals, ideas that they have. And then finally, he says, there is the degree to which institutional authority with its sanctions and controls penetrates the public. And so he says here, the problem is the degree to which the public has genuine autonomy from instituted authority. And he uses examples. One thinks of the late Nazi street and block system, the 18th century Japanese kumi, the Soviet cell structure. In the extreme, the formal structure of power coincides, as it were, with the informal ebb and flow of influence by decisions, which by discussion, which is thus killed off. So he sees that happening as well, that, that penetration of the authorities, of the, the power elites in their various forms, into every aspect of society. He goes on to discuss what goes on in mass society. So in a mass, first of all, few, far fewer people express opinions than receive them. Secondly, the communications that prevail are so organized that it is difficult or impossible for the individual to answer back immediately or with any effect. Thirdly, the realization of opinion in action is controlled by authorities who organize and control the channels of such action. So it's harder to act on your opinions, your beliefs. And fourthly, the mass has no autonomy from institutions. On the contrary, he says, agents of authorized institutions penetrate this mass, reducing any autonomy it may have in the formation of opinion by discussion. So we live, he says, in a mass society and not in a society of publics. And so he says, there is a movement as uh, we said last time, also cited this, this, uh, this passage, there is a movement from widely scattered little powers to concentrated powers and the attempt at monopoly control from powerful centers, which being partially hidden are centers of manipulation as well as of authority. The small shop serving the neighborhood is replaced by the anonymity of the national corporation. Mass advertisement replaces the personal influence of opinion between merchant and customer. The political leader hooks up his speech to a national network and speaks with appropriate personal touches to a million people he never saw and never will see. Entire brackets of professions in, and industries are in the opinion business, impersonally manipulating the public for hire. And that's the society in which we live. So what kinds of transformations have we seen in the development of this mass society? First of all, he says, one of the most important structural changes that has happened is the decline of the voluntary association as a genuine instrument of the public. So the voluntary association 
and its decline. And this is something that I've also addressed in my book, the, the decline of associations that exist between the individual and the power structure or the individual and the state, we could say. And he says, as we've already seen, the executive ascendancy in economic, military, and political institutions has lowered the effective use of all those voluntary associations which operate between the state and the economy on the one hand, and the family and the individual in the primary group on the other. So the institutions of power have become centralized and highly organized at large scale, and they've at the same time become less political and more administrative, even though we often think in, in political terms. Uh, as, I, as I've mentioned many times, there's far less difference at the top of the power pyramid politically than there is at the bottom. And he says, it's within this great change of framework that the organized public has waned. So the, the society has been atomized. So what the author goes on to say, what Mills goes on to say is, those who have supposed the masses to be all powerful, or at least well on their way to triumph, have, have got it wrong. In our time, the influence of autonomous collectivities within political life is in fact diminishing. So whatever kind of, of voluntary groups or associations, those autonomous collectivities, he calls them. Furthermore, such influence as they do have is guided. They must now be seen not as publics acting autonomous, autonomously, so, so freely uh, doing their own thing, but as masses manipulated at focal points into crowds of demonstrators. For as publics become masses, masses sometimes become crowds, and in crowds, the psychical rape by the mass media is supplemented up close by the harsh and sudden harangue. Then the people in the crowd disperse again as atomized and submissive masses. And I think what he has to say here is very, very insightful, especially when we think some 80 years on, just about from when he wrote these words, how the, the situation, how that trend has only continued and gotten even stronger. So he speaks about a, a psychological illiteracy among the masses. He says it's facilitated by the media and it's expressed in several ways. And this point is extremely important. And it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this and, and speaking about this, because it's something that we need to be aware of and it's something that, that we need to work very strongly against in our own so-called voluntary institutions, in the family, in the church, in our organizations. So he says uh, this psychological illiteracy is expressed, first of all, by this fact, very little of what we think we know of the social realities of the world have we found out firsthand. Most of the pictures in our heads we have gained from these media, even to the point where we often do not really believe what we see before us until we read about it in the paper or hear about it on the radio. Now just think about that for a moment. Just think about that in, uh, in terms of what's gone on over the past uh, three or so years. And what we've heard in the media as compared to our own personal experience, where the things that we heard, the alarmism that we heard in the media didn't line up with our experience, but 
because people are so have been so trained, so well trained, they believed what they saw in the media instead of believing their own eyes, instead of believing their own experience and the experience of others whom they know. So they, they filter reality through what they see on the screen and what they hear uh, via the, the mass media. So personal reality becomes something less important than what we receive filtered through the mass media. He says the individual does not trust his own experience until it is confirmed by others or by the media. And usually such direct exposure is not accepted if it disturbs loyalties and beliefs that the individual already holds. To be accepted, it must, must relieve or justify the feelings that often lie in the back of his mind as key features of his ideological loyalties. So people believe what they hear, they believe what they see on through the mass media and not what they experience. And then the second point, he says, so long as the media are not entirely monopolized, the individual can play one medium off against another. He can compare them and hence resist what any one of them puts out. And that's, I've heard, heard that being said, but we need to check various sources. You need to look at your left-wing source, you need to look at a right-wing source and look at, look at something, uh, a source that's more independent and, and play them off against each other in order to, to figure out what reality actually is. Uh, he says, the more genuine competition there is among the media, the more resistance the individual might be able to command. But how does that work in reality? He says, very few people actually do this. Uh, people tend strongly to select those media which carry contents with which they already agree. That's very true. I would imagine that the majority of people who are listening to this podcast or watching this podcast already, to a certain extent, at the very least, agree with a lot of things that I'm saying. One of the things that I'd like to do is, is have people uh, watching and listening who may not agree with what I say, but, but are willing to hear what I, what I have to say. But we all have this tendency. We want to, uh, we gravitate towards uh, media, we gravitate towards messages that we already agree with. Then the second point he makes here under this point is that this idea of playing one medium off against another assumes that the media really have varying contents. Now, this point is extremely important. It assumes genuine competition, which is not widely true. The media display an apparent variety in competition, but on closer view, they seem to compete more in terms of variations on a few standardized themes than of clashing issues. We see that most recently when it comes to uh, the uh, conflict in Ukraine, where what you'll see in, in uh, large part on Fox News is not going to be much different from what you see on CNN. So the third point he makes is the media have not only filtered into our experience of external realities, they have also entered into our very experience of our own selves. They have provided us with new identities and new aspirations of what we should be like or what we should like to be and what we should like to appear to be. And so the media tell the man in the mass who he is. They give him an identity. They tell him what he wants to be. They give him aspirations. They tell him how to get that way. They give him technique. 
And they tell him how to feel that, that he is that way, even when he is not. They give him escape. And I think there's a lot of wisdom here. And I'm going to repeat these four points because I think it's, it's, uh, it's very insightful as to what the media actually does to us. Tells us who we are. Gives us an identity. Tells us who we want to be. So they give us aspirations tell us how to get that way. They tell us how to accomplish our goals. So, so they give us technique and they tell us how to feel that we are that way even when we're not. They provide us with a way of escape. So there's those, those four aspects to what the media can do in the lives of people who are not adequately prepared to deal with the media, to be consumers of the media in its various forms. He goes on to say, as they now generally prevail, the mass media, especially television, often encroach upon the small-scale discussion and destroy the chance for a reasonable and leisurely and human interchange of opinion. He goes on to explain that a little bit more, and he says, the media provide much information and news about what is happening in the world, but they do not often enable the listener or the viewer truly to connect his daily life with these larger realities. And this is, a, this is a point that's made by Neil Postman, who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, very important work, that there's, and also others who have talked about the, the news media, that there's very little connection between what we see on the news, what we see in the media, and our own personal lives. So we see a lot of things on the news that we have no control over, that are far beyond our own experience, that are outside of our own uh, lives to such a great extent that they really ultimately become meaningless to us. So people who are hooked on watching the news, uh, they, they have this experience of, of a, a feeling of powerlessness or, and, and sometimes are led to even a feeling of despair because of that. But the media also distract him, the man, the, the man in the mass, he says, and obscure his chance to understand himself or his world by fastening his attention upon artificial frenzies that are resolved within the program framework, usually by violent action or by what is called humor. So they, they bring up emotions in the person, they work those emotions up to a certain point, to a high point, and then suddenly uh, that emotion is cut off uh, with a with a resolution, whether that's in entertainment or whether that's in news, it's all artificial. And he concludes this section by saying the media, as now organized and operated, are even more than a major cause of the transformation of America into a mass society. They are also among the most important of those increased means of power now at the disposal of elites of wealth and power. Moreover, some of the higher agents of these media are themselves either among the elites or very important among their servants. So there's those, those ties between the, the, the three groups of the elite, the military, the political wing, and uh, the corporate wing, and the media, with the media being included. And now, with the development of the internet, those, those ties have become even closer, that those... Uh, uh, incestuous relationships between these groups has become all the more uh, obvious and all the more clear. As you see, the military-industrial complex and its development of 
the internet and the various uh, media that are that are uh, taking control uh, in the uh, online world, uh, including the uh, the development of Google and the development of of other major social networks as well as developments of the military industrial complex. So you see that that those ties are extremely close. And uh, as I said, it's like a it's like an incestuous relationship, which makes the media even more powerful. Now, he goes on and says uh, that to change opinion and activity, some people say we must pay close attention to the full context and lives of the people to be managed. Along with mass persuasion, we must somehow use personal influence. We must reach people in their life context and through other people, their daily associates, those whom they trust. We must get at them by some kind of personal persuasion. And so the, in, the, the opinion makers, those, those people who, who think along these lines, uh, they, they can act directly and openly upon the, the primary publics. And if, if they can get that power, they become authoritative. But if they don't have that power, then they have to operate indirectly and without visibility, but then they, they assume the stance of manipulators. And so you have that manipulation of the masses going on behind the scenes. And that becomes a problem, he says, whenever people in power uh, have power that's concentrated but do not have authority or when they don't want to use that power openly. So when there are things going on behind the scenes, they want to manipulate, they want to nudge people in certain directions. And so they become manipulators in that way using whatever techniques are available at hand. So he says, the small circle tries to manipulate people into willing acceptance or cheerful support of their decisions or opinions, or at least to the rejection of possible counter opinions. And he goes on to speak about how this works itself out in society, but I think the point has been made. We, when, uh, when we come to the conclusion of Mills in his book, The Power Elite, we can see that, that just, to, just to conclude this discussion, there is, in fact, this power elite that, that exists, that has genuine power, and that works to expand that power, to maintain that power, first of all, and then to expand that power and to gain more power for, for themselves. They use the media, the mass media, mass formation, as uh, Matthias de Smet uh, spoke about, and I've, I spoke about that in previous episodes, that mass formation to control the masses, which have become the masses and, and, and not uh, a society of publics because of this, the disintegration of various uh, organizations, voluntary organizations that exist between the individual and uh, the power structure. And uh, that, that relationship between the power elite and the masses is the relationship that characterizes our society today. And that is the relationship that we need to be aware of in the first place. Um, constantly, again, uh, constantly repeating that. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of how that works. We need to be able to see through it. We need to be able to think clearly and critically about that so that we are 
really part of a community of publics, a, a, a community in which uh, our voice is heard, not a community of masses in which we are being manipulated by the power elites. And that's, and that's why it's so important for us to understand this, because as Christians, we have as our basis uh, two of those, if not more, uh, two of those intermediate organizations instituted by God for our benefit and for the benefit of the world. Instituted, uh, really, uh, one of, one of the, the foundational elements of creation is the, the formation of the family. And the family as the building block of society, as the place where uh, traditions and beliefs, where faith is transmitted from generation to generation, where children are raised and trained, and where we, where we do that specifically, uh, training our children to walk in the fear of the Lord. And the church, which is that, that great intermediate organization, unlike any other, uh, which is really where uh, we as individual Christians and as families of Christians are strengthened and built up and work together uh, and uh, do what God has called us to do and what, what Jesus Christ called us to do in the Great Commission, uh, to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. And having as our foundation the one who said himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that is that the, the foundation that we need to hang on to in this world where the power elites are doing everything that they possibly can to, to wield that power and to have control and where the masses or that the, the public has become the mass and as mass is easily being manipulated by those power elites. So, so ultimately, you know, this, this, uh, this series of, of two podcasts on C. Wright Mills, The Power Elite, uh, could have been uh, a series that I did right at the beginning of uh, this series of episodes in the podcast. It could have been episode number one and two, uh, really forming the foundation of the, the rest of, of what I'm trying to accomplish by doing this podcast. And, and I hope that this has been helpful to think about how these things work. Probably not a lot of new information for those of, of you who are regular listeners or watchers of the podcast, but Mills puts things in a different way and helps us to, to, to come at these issues from at least a slightly different perspective so that we can understand and not just understand what's going on, but also explain it to others. Because that's, that's also a part of our task and our calling to, to also in our lives, in our conversations, in our relationships, to help other people to see what's going on in the world where perhaps they may not have seen it in the past. So that's all for this week's episode. And uh, I pray that this episode has been a blessing for you. If you have found it helpful, uh, please do pass it on. Please do pass on the link to the Rumble channel or to the audio podcast. Uh, check out my website, dan1132.com. Uh, once again, I'm, I'm here in Brazil and uh, I'm trying to put out these podcasts as regularly as possible. They're not going to come out as regularly as they do when I'm uh, in my home lair. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, continue on, on as regular basis as possible uh, for the duration of my stay here in Brazil, which will be until the end of July. So until next time, may God bless you and may God help us all to fulfill those words of Daniel 11, verse 32, 
which formed the, the title uh, of this podcast, Dan 11.32. May, may he help us to be people who know him, first of all, and knowing him, people who stand firm and take action.